If you'd like to give us any feedback, please send your emails to anopenletter2u at gmail.com. I'm too sexy for my love, too sexy for my love, love's going to leave All right. Um, I feel like I'm in a, like a really bad nightclub that happens to be located by a pond or something. Right, where the uh, the cricket, uh, the fly noises. This is a really bad nightclub? I don't think so. If it were a nightclub, it would be really bad. Really bad. It's topical, to be sure. That's, that's fine. Um, we are going to talk about love and relationships, and we're going to talk about sex. Yeah, that's right. This is an open letter. I'm Dave. I'm the host of the show, and to my left is my lovely wife, Carol. Hello. Across from me is my good friend, Chad the Cashman. That's me. And to his left, my right, is his lovely girlfriend. Introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Julie. Welcome again, Julie. Well, we have a fantastic guest today, in my opinion. It's an older friend of mine, another one of my friends from Iowa. I met Adam Smith probably 15 years ago, 16 years ago. Well, he was just a young, young man. He was a mere pup, and uh, he was kind of a youth intern. And, uh, of course, you guys, if you've been listening to the show, you have you know who Mike and Charlotte Hintz are, and he worked kind of with Mike Hintz. Isn't that right, Mr. Adam Smith? That is correct. When did you and I meet? How long ago was that? Man, that would have been, whew, what, 16, 17 years ago? Yeah. 18 years ago? That was I, a long time ago. <laughs> I came to First Assembly in Des Moines in 2001 in January. Oh, yeah. And I, Were you there then? I was. Right. I was. So, yeah, Adam and I used to do a little bit of uh, creative stuff together. Adam used to put together an, uh, these hilarious videos for youth group. And I got to be a... I was a bully. Do you remember that? I do remember that one. Do you, do you remember me um, being pushed off a roof in a box? What? Yeah, I remember that. I remember them also pulling, I want to say it was David Pendrick's pulling stuff out of a fridge and just dumping it on your face. He did smear and mustard was, on my face, Mr. Pendrick did. Like mustard. <laughs> I want to say there was like hot sauce involved, and wow. which now this is sounding really uncomfortable, especially given the, the topic that we're going to talk about that, today. That, that's right, that's right. We try to make it as uncomfortable as possible here on our podcast. <laughs> um, you, you did run me over with a car, too. If you remember that, I rolled up onto yes. the hood and windshield. Oh, yes. But I was a skinnier man. If I did that now, I'd probably uh, blow out the front suspension. <laughs> so I respect that you did your own stunts, though. <laughs> that's right. There's no stand-ins for me. I do them all my own stunts. I'm kind of like Tom Cruise in that way. And yeah. that's where the comparison begins and ends. Um, so tell us... Kind of, can you give us a little bit of a, a background about, you know, what happened and give us a little bit of a rundown about who you are, what you've been doing since then? Man, since then, let me just give you a quick overview of the last uh, 17 years. Yeah. <laughs> Keep it under two minutes, all right? Come on. <laughs> um, man, like since, I think since I've seen you last, I got married, my wife Gretchen. I was at your wedding. And <laughs> yes, I have three kids. Yep. Um, Tegan, Cohen, and Ezekiel. For a while, we were uh, youth pastors 
in like the greater Phoenix area. Uh, we lived in Mesa and um, worked for a church called City of Grace that was down there and helped them. Uh, they actually it was it was a kind of a huge church of about five thousand people, and then they actually merged with another church um, in the uh, the Scottsdale area of another couple thousand people and. I don't know what you call two mega churches that merge, a mega mega, the extra mega um, <laughs> church squared, at that know. point. Yeah, and so we we ran all the youth programming there for uh, about six years, and then moved to California about six years ago to be a part of South Hills Church. Um, and so we we kind of helped them begin the process of like trying to plant churches and kind of different types of churches. Uh-huh kind of reinvented a bunch of things about kind of how we did church mm-hmm. just this past year. So it would have been Christmas of this last year. They asked me to take over the the main campus, uh, which is in Corona, California. And so I'm, I'm overseeing the, the main campus and um, the main teaching pastor and um, have a lot to do with uh, a bunch of the creative direction stuff that we do. So... I kind of have my hand in a lot of different things because I'm ADD and I have to have a lot of things happening at once to feel like I'm doing something. I remember that. Yeah. Thanks for the kind of the update. We always start the show off with a little segment I like to call off the cuff. And what that means is, is I literally just pop in a question that I've thought of sometime in the last day or so, um, knowing that we're going to be recording. So tonight's off the cuff question is this. It's 10 o'clock at night. You're hungry. What is one of your most consistent go-to snacks on just a normal weekday evening and you just you need a little bit of food? What's some of your go-to snacks that uh, maybe what you're tempted to eat and what you actually eat? And those may be the same things, even though they probably shouldn't <laughs> be. Um, we're going to start with Chad Cashman. What's your go-to snack, buddy? I tend to like popcorn. The popcorn guy. Is the it got butter and guy. salt? Eh, microwave, whatever comes in it. I like to do light butter myself. Right, but, right. Good um, to know. Good to know. Milk duds. This is the type of exciting radio drama that we are on a podcast for. This is the things people want to know. Um, <laughs> Carol Wilson. Yes? Well, you, the question is posed to you. Well, I'm tempted by ice cream, but I... Mm like to eat popcorn because I feel like it's somewhat healthy. We had a snacky thing the other day, like a snack mix. That was very good. It was. It was a special deal at Family Fair. That's why I bought it. But now it's gone. That's unfortunate. <laughs> Julie, do you have one? I would say I'd go with popcorn also, but I tend to use the popcorn popper instead of microwave, and I like yeah. to melt the butter and the oh, yeah. eat it together and put it on top. Mm-hmm. I do the popcorn in a, in a pot on the stove and now we have to because I didn't Old mention school. to you, but the microwave died today. Oh, well, good to know. Real family living right here. <laughs> um, no more microwave popcorn. Adam Smith, what? Uh, how about you, man? <laughs> I want to pretend like uh, like it's popcorn and like I'm super healthy like you guys. <laughs> but in reality, what ends up happening is, for whatever reason, I feel like my wife always has leftover taco meat. In the fridge. Oh. <laughs> Who doesn't? And, Come on, let's be honest. Yeah. All right. Um, where she always has, like, random taco meat around, and, like, just the thought of, of like, having a, like, a little, like, with some taco meat on, like, a, 
a flour tortilla with like some melty cheese and like a little bit of barbecue. <laughs> that at like ten thirty at night is just sounds magical. It doesn't feel as magical at about four in the morning no. after you've made that <laughs> poor decision, but no. but it it sounds amazing and then it tastes amazing in the moment. Yeah, and, and then, then you get to live live with regrets. So that's good times. Well, because it's about four a.m. That whole decision is hitting the colon. I think is what's happening yeah. right there. Um, that sounds amazing right now, actually. Could we send someone out for that? Um, so, Adam, go ahead. I haven't had dinner. So. We haven't either. I haven't either. We're hoping afterwards maybe we could all go get some dinner. So I'll answer, too. I will, man, it, it could be all over the board, but my go-to would be totally ice cream with chocolate syrup on it and some <laughs> whipped topping. That's what I'm about because I'm Dutch, and ice cream calls to out to my Dutch? soul. Everyone who's Dutch loves ice cream. I'm Dutch, and I love ice cream. Amen. I'm not Do Dutch at all, else? and I love ice cream. Adam, do you yeah. remember making up a super Dutch name in Iowa? Do you remember that? Oh, yes. What was it again? I have no remembrance of the actual name. Was or maybe it, I've done that to protect myself. Was it Van Vandersma or something like that? <laughs> There's a few Vans in there. I remember that. There, there always has to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love this story. Could you please talk to us about your first day of, was it high school or junior high? <laughs> what? First day of junior high, could where you, could you tell us about that a little bit? Oh my gosh, where I dressed up like a uh, a superhero. Is yeah, what you're referring to? That's the one. That's Why the one. would you do that, Adam? <laughs> <laughs> tell us the story, Adam. Yes. Why would I do that? That is a question I've asked myself many times <laughs> since then. Why would I do this? Yeah. No, I had I had this vision in my mind that like if I dressed up like a superhero and and showed up at, at school and like that it would like people would get it and it would be like funny and quirky and interesting and awesome and like everyone would be my want to be my friend and I had kind of this whole I tend to visualize everything in a very cinematic way <laughs> and so in my head I kind of thought I would show up and like push open the doors and there'd be like fog and you know <laughs> just ladies excited to see me in this cape and ill-fitting tights and underwear on the outside and yeah, uh, as a weapon. It was clearly a mistake. Tell us a little bit about the costume, please. And and I believe that your parents tried to talk you out of it, so you didn't actually leave the house wearing that? Oh, yeah. My parents, my kids do this to me now, where of they'll course. tell me something they think is brilliant, and I'm like, that is, that's not going to work. Like, you don't know. That's not going to pan out the way you think it is in your brain. But in my head... I had I actually had a friend named Jeremy Beaver, it's a great and name. he was he was gonna like dress up as um, he wanted to call himself the Beave Man, and then um, I <laughs> of course I did. was gonna call myself uh, the Weeze, which is short for the Weasel. I'm not really sure why we were obsessed with uh, why I was obsessed with weasels at the time, but like I remember drawing them a lot, uh-huh. like on math papers and whatnot. Well, sure. And so I decided to name myself the Weeze, which made it seem like you know, a dig at the fact that, like, I was chubby and asthmatic, which it was not, um, but it was actually short for the weasel. And so I had this, like, I had this, this cape. I had this, this W that I cut out that I, like, stitched to the shirt, which is, like, sleeveless. And then I've got these, like, cut-off, like, cut-off sweatpants. I'm wearing cowboy boots with shorts, which, of course, is a beautiful look. Um, and then I've got this utility belt that, like, I, I handmade that's got all these random, you know, uh, like, basically kitchen tools that I was going to somehow use 
and I had like a little mask and my my parents this is like eighth grade because um, I, I moved to a new school oh. it was my first day at this new school and I was like oh my gosh this is going to be in my head this is so smart I'm so my sorry. parents discouraged me so I put all this stuff in my backpack and then I changed actually behind these bushes uh, of uh, like that were by the school so of course yeah. there's somebody like making coffee in the morning looking out and being like there's a naked chubby kid putting on cowboy boots in my backyard. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, of the course, time. I got to school, and it was just not not as cool as it was in my mind and did not go down well. <laughs> it was crazy, though. Did, did you get a, a nickname from that, or you probably got a little bit of a reputation from that? Oh, there were all sorts of nicknames. <laughs> uh, <that laughs> came yeah. at, most of which cannot be repeated. Um, on a family uh, podcast. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, but it was it. I definitely did not like live that down ever. Yeah, you know you're probably still known for that to this day. Mm-hmm. You're oh, gonna be like, remember that kid that dressed up as a superhero our first day of school? He's a pastor now. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I, I kind of figured that was gonna happen. Yeah, it, it, it works. It fits. So Adam, you have always been honestly one of the funniest people I've ever known. And I used to show people the videos you'd make just because some of them were just so wacky. I think also of the time where you were running a youth retreat and called the Irrelevant Elephant, I think. I'm full of regret. From, <laughs> from, I think most of what I did as a youth intern. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't, you don't do that in your church now? Not so much. Okay. Not so much. And so recently, I as I've kind of heard that you were at a newer church, so earlier this year I started listening to your sermons again. You obviously use a lot of comedy and a lot of humor in your sermons, which is a very much an extension of who you are. So I got to thinking, because you'll go off on these riffs, right? And uh, have you ever thought of doing stand-up comedy? Uh, I, You know, uh, people say stuff like that to me, and it's it's not like it's definitely not like uh, the road that I want to go down, but um, I think I love using um, I love using humor as a tool to kind of disarm people, so that we can get into something that I think is deeper. I think it softens people up to just kind of like, oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, and then when you go to kind of hit them with something that you really want to talk about, and you want to kind of mine the depths of the soul. There's you've kind of removed that barrier. Um, with just the fact that people are all laughing together and having fun and kind of have that, like, that knowing, like, me too moment. I just, I love being able to create that moment um, in a big crowd of people and then quickly shift gears and take them somewhere else, I think, uh, which is my favorite, I think my, one of my favorite parts about preaching. There's an, another advantage to that that I've learned as an educator. They have done some research that has shown that people retain information better if they're relaxed and amused. So mm. using humor in the classroom helps a lot too because it, like you said, it disar- disarms people because they're letting down their guard. It helps them to absorb the information better and keep it. Absolutely. So that's cool. Yeah. A question I have is how much of when you're, when you're doing that in a sermon, how much of that is written out and how much of it, it goes into ad lib? <laughs> that's a good question. I don't write a ton of that out. I I, I will definitely like pre-think through um, some things, but I would say you're probably in like a almost a fifty-fifty range. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, the benefit that I have 
um, at where I'm at right now is that I, every weekend I get to preach four times. So oh. by the time by the time I get to the last one, um, there's probably a lot. There's probably a lot less riffing, but the riffing that I do is like <laughs> way out there because I've, I'm tired and I've done it so many times that I'm trying Alex. to keep it interesting for me. Yeah, because that's, that's what's important. important. <laughs> keep the yeah, pastor and, interested. And that's usually the one that my wife comes to, and of then course. there's always a moment where she was like, "Yeah, too far," um, <laughs> which which keeps it fun for us. So, <laughs> um, we've all probably heard this before: is there's three things you're not supposed to talk about in uh, polite company or at dinner, and that is politics, religion, and sex. And at an open letter, we enjoy talking about all three as often as we can because that's just how <laughs> we roll. And of course, this episode's going to fit right in. And then we've kind of taken a little bit of time to get to the point. But tonight, we're going to reference back to a series you did about sex. So tonight, we're going to kind of talk about sex. Why talk about sex? Well, I think, you know, for, for us um, here at South Hills, our big aim as a church is to meet people where they're at and address things that they're, at, they're actually experiencing. Um, and again, our, our target audience, we're West Coast, um, very liberal culture, mm-hmm. and you also have a lot of unchurched people, so people that did not grow up in church, that are de-churched, that have been hurt by the church, who don't see the point of church, and so I'm constantly thinking about, so if I'm somebody who isn't really interested in God, church, I don't believe in the Bible, what captures my attention? Like, what am I interested in? What do I need help with? Maybe I don't really, I don't really care about God, I don't even know if I believe in God, but there is a certain subject that, man, if you, if you talk to me on that, I'm going to lean in a little bit because that, that's something that I'm wrestling with in my own life, and I'm not really sure that what I'm doing or the way that I'm approaching it is working. And I'm definitely open to better suggestions, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so I think for me, I mean, obviously, um, sex is a huge part of our life. I mean... It's yeah. one of the main drivers of why we do the things we do, why we want to be certain places, why we want to, um, why we want to work out, why we want to dress a certain way, why we want to get our hair did, like uh, all that stuff. Why we want to dress um, like a superhero on the first day of middle school. Exactly. Sexuality is a massive driver for us. And again, I mean, the, the movies that we watch, the books that we're about, mm-hmm. so many of those things surround relationships and sex. And a lot of it is because most of us as humans, we have this feeling like, this is super important and I really care a lot about it. Yeah. I have no idea what I'm doing. And, <laughs> and so I think it's both, I think it's both and it's both so like we want, we want to be involved in that conversation because we want, we want to experience like the, oh, I'm not the only one who feels like I don't know what I'm doing and I'm insecure and it's, yeah. I can't figure it out and it's not working. And we're hoping that maybe somebody has some bit of information that's going to work better than what we're already doing. You, uh, in February, you did, you preached and kind of referenced it, a four-part series uh, titled Hearts and Arrows. And this series was more than just about sex. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about what that series entailed? The idea behind Hearts and Arrows is that we, you know, we all, just as humans, we all want to have meaningful connections with other people. And, you know, of course, in our culture, we reference that as, like, we want to we wanna have a heart connection with somebody. We want to we wanna fall in love. We want to have meaningful relationships. Of course, the pushback inside of the nervousness is when you put your heart out there, there's a chance you're going to get an arrow through it. There's just so much connected to that. And so we basically kind of broke it down into, into four movements, which we tend to do a lot. 
you're not learning everything there is to know about a subject. You're just learning kind of one thought, one big idea. Um, we talked about just the idea of um, kind of modern mythology, like the idea of like, you know, so much of all of our culture pushes towards this, man, if I can just find um, the right person, like everything will be all right. And, and everything in life is just going to click into place if I can find them. And, of course, it sends a lot of us on this journey of putting ourselves out there, getting rejected, realizing that um, four relationships in that, like, man, that person didn't fix me. Just it didn't it didn't work like I thought it was going to work. Um, and so that was kind of the first week. Um, and then the, the second week, we just had a sex talk. I think for our specific audience, a lot of times we will, I will just set the Bible aside because I think to start from Scripture for people who put no stock in it is just not that's not helpful to them. Right, and so a lot of times I'll start somewhere else and I'll kind of bring people around to a point by leveraging other means. And so for this particular message, we just talked about just this idea of why, why do we have so much baggage when it comes to sex? Like there are all these things that happen to us sexually that mark us in our lives. And so we want to pretend like sex isn't a big deal. And yet, you know, if, if, uh, if something happens to someone, you have a sexual experience when you're younger, um, somebody takes advantage of you, there's all this stuff that's connected so deeply. You know, you, you have a long-term relationship, and then someone kind of pushes you aside, and yeah. it's like you can't let go of it. I mean, there's so much great information uh, about brain chemistry and neurology that talks a lot about the permanence or the, the neural pathways that are laid um, and the chemicals that go off in our brains when yeah. it comes to sex and how those things tend to bond us to people in ways that have all sorts of like emotional connotations and, and really kind of taking that approach and then being like, okay, when you contextualize all that to what we now know about science, some of these, some of these kind of warnings in Scripture make a little bit more sense um, because of what we now know. I found that to be really interesting, some of the brain chemistry stuff. And, and Carol uh, is, you know, she's a uh, professor and so very interested in, in learning and, you know, being in the academic world. And uh, there was some stuff in there that she had heard about before, but there was the, you know, like the, what are some of the drugs that you would, were familiar with? The drugs? Well, in the you brain. you mean the, the dopamine? And yeah, dopamine kind of the, and yeah. The chemicals? Yeah, yeah. No, I thought that um, when you were talking about a guy having multiple partners, how that takes away from his drive to settle down. It's like yeah. sticking a piece of tape to several different places and eventually it loses its stickiness. What was that chemical called, Adam? Because that was really co- that interesting. Was cool. Yeah, that's vasopressin. That's so, cool. yeah, that's the male bonding chemical. Yeah, and so you were saying in the message that the more that guys sleep around, the more they lose and almost have potentially even have an inability to connect with a woman and settle down because there is kind of a, a limit to how, how much they have of that. Yeah, it's, it's exhaustible. So like it can be depleted, which again is just such a, a crazy thing to think about, um, you know, because again, uh, kind of our cultural way of experiencing things is, you know, I'm going to be with as many women as I can, have as many experiences as I can. Yeah. Um, and and then, like, when I'm ready to settle down, like, I'll just flip a switch. Right, and that doesn't and, work that and way. I'll just, 
yeah, I'll just make a commitment to someone and I'll be fine. And, and the more we're learning about brain chemistry, the more we're discovering, like, that actually doesn't work. Um, like, we don't even have that biological ability to do that. And kind of the more, the more we create this bond and then break it and then create it and break it and create it and break it, right. it the adhesive quality kind of dissipates and which is a, a, a horribly sad thing. And we all probably, you know, know people or maybe even had our own experience. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, what, what is that? And you it's know? praised in our culture. You know, obviously, there. I mean, the Playboy, the you know, Tony Starks, the guys who, you know, can go around and connect with lots of different women. And, I mean, that's just kind of admired. James Bond. Yeah, absolutely. Applauded. Yeah. The third one, uh, you called that, uh, was that the Super Bowl one? No, the third one, I think we talked about, the idea of like contempt and, oh, and what, right. yeah. what happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so kind of just the idea of the the basis of, of really what what kind of tanks relationships. A lot of people like to say, well, like the things that really tank relationships are, you know, sex and money and all this sorts of stuff. And, and in reality, um, most of, of what actually crashes and burns relationships is is contempt, which is like, you know, where you get to a place that you have, you've kind of made a decision about who someone is. Right. And you replay, you know, the stuff that you feel like they've done to you. Um, it's, yeah. it's this bitterness that kind of grows. It's like a slant against the other person. Mm-hmm. The more you indulge in that, that idea, that concept, um, when thinking about this other person, the more difficult it gets for you to think about them as anything other than this kind of, you know, stupid, worthless, almost, almost non-human. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in your message too, that, um, that interesting about how you need to see sometimes through people through a different prescription as referring to like, uh, reading or glasses and, and your prescription totally affects how you view people if your prescription towards someone is contempt, it doesn't matter what they do. You're going to always kind of file it in the contempt file. It'll only you'll figure out a way to have it feed the contempt, right? Oh, absolutely. And again, we've had those experiences with people where it's like, man, nothing I do is good enough for them. Yeah, absolutely. And, That's the worst and, thing in the world. It, yeah, and it's because it's not. As a pastor, I get to sit down with people whose you know relationships are falling apart, and it's heartbreaking. Oh yeah. When you sit with a couple, and it's just like. You know, I don't know what to do because I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this. Mm. And yet even when I'm, you know, bringing the flowers or like cleaning the living room or trying to write this love letter, it's like it's viewed through this lens of like, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to get at? What are you trying to make up for? Right. I know what's really behind this. And even though that one thing may be completely innocent, there's so much baggage, yeah. um, you know, in that person's heart or mind. And, and sometimes the baggage really, I think the bulk of baggage in, in, in relationships isn't actually something that was done. It was just the hmm. obsessive meditation on the thing that was done yeah, that's really under like a negative heat lamp, yeah, you know, and it, and it becomes like the cloud around it becomes way bigger than the thing ever was. Yeah. And then everything gets filtered through that. There are, there are things that could unfold um, around us and... Mm-hmm. For you know, for one couple, the same exact um, maneuver or the same exact uh, phrase or the same exact moment 
could be filtered through contempt or filtered through this other idea of like, I actually think the best of you. I don't think you're out to get me. I really think yeah. you love me. You're also flawed and you make mistakes, but like I haven't prejudged your your motives. And I think like that's really what it comes down to of okay. like you know, judging the motives of another person. That makes that makes sense. I have a friend of mine who's a counselor who's also been on the podcast and he says unfortunately what happens sometimes is he'll get a couple and they come to him for help and this problem is ten years in the making. And they come to him with barely nothing left to even work on because they've had contempt for so long. It gets to the point where it's so toxic. Then they go help. Then we need yeah. help. And it's so difficult to put it back together at that, at that stage. And what was the fourth one about? That was the Super Bowl one where you had a fantastic opening, which was almost cliche, as you said, because it had been done so often. <laughs> exactly. So the last one um, was actually, I just want to talk about the cultural view of women. Um, and so I, I opened the message with by showing a, a tampon commercial, which, of course, so many preachers are doing nowadays. It's so um, overly done. It, and I almost feel like, ugh, again. I know, right? Um, <laughs> Chad, Chad, has a really, Chad has a really confused look on his face right now, I think. You know, I don't... <laughs> Open up um, with the with the tampon commercial, and it's actually one from um, and from the, uh, a couple of Super Bowls ago where um, it was the Like a Girl commercial that always actually put out. Um, yeah. And I was just talking about how you know, actually, when I saw the commercial originally, like it it really choked me up. And then, of course, you have to deal with the embarrassment of uh, getting <laughs> choked up during a tampon commercial um, with all your guy friends watching the Super Bowl. Right, because that um, doesn't normally but, happen a ton. <laughs> right. What do you mean? It happens to um, me all the time. Yeah, I know it happens to you all the time, honey, but <laughs> that's uh, um, a little different for the men. But, yeah, the, the whole concept of the commercial is is this idea of, you know, like a girl is such a derogatory term. Um, Throw like a girl, and, hit like a girl. Yeah. yeah. And so, but why, why, why has it become that? And why have we allowed it to be this, this negative thing or this weak thing? And so I talked about that, and then I also talked about, you know, of course, during the Super Bowl, there's always the, the ad for, like, the Victoria's Secret fashion show, right? Um, which is always super fun when you're watching with a bunch of Christians because, like, no one makes eye contact, <laughs> and it's super weird. Everyone's trying um, to bounce their eyes a la Fred Stoker. You're like, I can't watch this, exactly, so I'll go to hell. Exactly. Everyone's, like, trying to make, everyone's thumbing through, like, a, um, a Gideon Bible that happens to be sitting next to them on a coffee table. And, well, I'm not sure where you're having these Super Bowl parties where there's Gideon Bibles <laughs> laying all over the place, but in super rundown hotels, that's, is that that's, not normal? And that's where the best Super Bowl parties are held, um, in my experience. Absolutely. And uh, and then you have the guys that are kind of trying to, you know, even though the Victoria's Secret commercial is going on, they're trying to quick uh, sneak a peek, hoping none of the other guys notice. <laughs> super true. Those are the they unholy talk, ones. Uh, yeah. Talk to about it in uh, the next accountability meeting, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, we could go off on that. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of the point I was just trying to make is just how, you know, as you, as you watch this, specifically Super Bowl commercials, there's so many different, you know, expectations being put on women all at the same time. Absolutely. And, um, you know, as men, we're not even really always cognizant of that, of like, you have this empowerment ad, which is like, you know, girls, you can be anything, you can do anything, and like, you know, it's a shame that, uh, you know, that we've we've created this context in which, 
you're held down and held under and and um to be you to be a woman to be a girl is is even a derogatory that's that's shameful that we've done that mm-hmm. and then right afterwards an ad where it's like you can be anything you want to as long as you happen to be sexy as well and because skinny. that's really what we value yeah, yeah you got to be you got to be skinny and and you've got to be you got to be sexy and you have to be wearing something lacy and you have to be able to turn heads but but also like you do whatever you want to and it's not really about that and so just all this, like, there's all this being thrown at women all at the same time. Yep. We want to be the kind of church that just calls out stuff like that, of like, hey, that's yeah. real, that exists. Um, what, what do we do with that? Like, what do, we, what do we think that maybe even God thinks about that? And so we kind of took just the avenue of really talking about, you know, ancient culture in which, in which a, a lot of the, the, you know, the New Testament was written in obviously took place um, inside of a culture that was very oppressive um, yeah, towards women, extremely, where you know women were commodities, they were bought and sold, um, they were a step above animals, and yet we look at that, and especially in the culture that you know out here where I'm at, it's a very liberal culture. We look at that and we're like, oh, that's so. I can't believe that you know we were ever at that place in humanity, but in all actuality we still kind of treat women like commodities. Oh, yeah. It's and just, like we're a little more... to be bought and sold and ogled yeah. and owned and had. And, you know, it's, it's almost like we almost treat it like a parlor trick when mm-hmm. uh, a, a woman does something amazing. Um, <laughs> because it's like, well, your real purpose is just to be sexy and then keep quiet. But then when you do something amazing, it's almost like um, we treat it like, you know, like a pet on David Letterman who did a, an impressive trick. Which as opposed we, yeah. to like, you no, know, all humans you know, are endowed with um, the image of God and, and have, like, this um, incredible capability um, to, to do anything. Yeah. Um, and we, we pretend like we believe that, but we, we kind of don't well, we fight, in terms of the way we act. Yeah, we fight people. so much against it in culture, and, and Carol's found that. And Carol, like I've mentioned before, is really bright, and she's, like, way <laughs> smarter than me and, um, you know, I totally married up. But she has found okay, that being enough. all right. But I, Carol's found that where like her intelligence like intimidates and scares scared off a lot of guys when she was trying to date. It was like guys were like, "No, I'm not dating a girl that's smarter than me." <laughs> yeah, it's it's this thing where you know I can't be I can't be outdone by a woman because in some way if she's like smarter than me or um, stronger than me, or more decisive than me, um, or, Makes you know, she's, yeah, more, more money or, or more skilled in this certain area, then I'm less of a, less of a person. Because yeah. it's been ingrained in us that, like, you know, as men, that we're, we're clearly better. We have to hold our position. Mm-hmm. And, it, again, it's, just, it's, it's a really skewed idea of, of humanity. But... Again, it's we've, we're we're swimming in it. You know what I mean Absolutely. inside of our inside of our culture. So it's really hard to bust out of. Um, which is again, you know, any, the more pervasive something is, the more we have to talk about it publicly. Exactly. So that people can can identify that it's actually happening and to to move forward. Um, but we can't do that if we're always pretending it doesn't exist. Exactly, and it's so difficult because it is so pervasive. And the church has historically talked about this in such a poor way. We either don't talk about it at all, or when we do talk about it, we talk in a very shame-based way, or, but mainly we don't want anyone to speak about it. We don't want to have that conversation. 
And I'm kind of curious as to, do you have any thoughts on why is it like that? I think part of it is, I mean, there's definitely, in, in the Western world, there's definitely the, you know, puritanical um, influence on, you know, where it's like, keep it buttoned up, we don't talk about certain things um, in public spaces, um, we don't have these sorts of conversations, which, of course, the response to that is is complete rebellion, right? So you, the more you tell people that something is off-limits, the more exciting it becomes to, like, indulge in it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, it backfires, right? Um, like eating tacos I mean, I, at 10.30 at night, you know? It's, it's frowned exactly. upon. Exactly. The more something is against the rules, the more exciting and fun and amazing it, it actually kind of appears or feels or seems to us. And I think... Um, I think a, a part of it is just that we're we're afraid of where those conversations are are going to go, and I also think that people don't really want you to know what they think or what they do. Their nervousness, their insecurity, their their shame, what makes them feel guilty, um, is wrapped up in those in those topics. Yeah, it, it's and so it's like, man, scary. you start diving deep into that, and then I now I have to face this thing that happened to me when I was nine. I have to face this kind of Thing that I'm into that I don't think a lot of people are into. I have to face the fact that I've had these experiences that, I, like, if people knew I had them, like, what would they think about me, and what would that mean? Right. I think a lot of it is it's it's image. You know, we're trying to control our our image. Mm-hmm. If we can just if we can just not talk about it, if we can just pretend it doesn't exist, then you know, I'm I'm not going to be outed. Would you, you know? would you agree that some of the deepest soul wounds are sexual wounds? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think so. And sadly, part of the reason that that's true is because um, we've made it so secretive. Right. And so, you know, that's, that's one of the things, like, in, in the recovery movement that's talked about a lot. What are you talking about? You know, Alcoholics Anonymous or um, Narcotics Anonymous or... Um, anything like that. It's the idea of the shame that you have. It's only as powerful as the secrets that you keep. Once certain things come out in the open, they lose their power. Yeah. And unfortunately, we've created this like weird vacuum mm-hmm. in which we've actually, by being like, don't talk about that, we've actually made it worse. We've compounded the shame. Absolutely. We've compounded the, the secrecy. And so I think a lot of times people hold on to things for a really long time that they could have been free of way sooner, but we didn't want to talk about it. And now it almost becomes the norm, and we make the world become the resource to come talk to about it, to be open and honest about it, because the church sure isn't going to be open and honest. And I was just wondering what kind of response you got from, from that series, if you had any negative feedback, or, or was it mostly positive, or people glad you were talking about it? Um, you know, that was actually, I think, the encouraging thing um to me is just the the super positive response that we got of people being really grateful that we were addressing the issues that we were and there was there was definitely tension in the room but there was also sure. this collective sigh at moments where people are like ah, like you're going to tell me something that's helpful you know you're going to tell me that I'm not the only one you're going to tell me that that there's there's help you're going to say this thing out loud in this room that like I want to be true but I don't even know how to ask or I don't know how to start the conversation and um, you know what I am I'm messed up and broken just like everybody else That's and I so want important. 
to, I want to talk about real stuff. Yeah. I want to put a name to something that is haunting you so that you can name it, so that it comes out in the open, so that you can have conversations with, with people. Once somebody's, and this is like, we see this all the time, like in the media, right? Once somebody breaks their silence on something, then the floodgates open, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's kind of a little bit what happened. Part of my heart in the church is to get to the point where I think you had mentioned this as well, but the church should be the place where we can honestly and openly talk about anything and everything and do it yeah. in a safe, non-shame-based way. We're going to go to kind of a lightning round here because there's some stuff I really want to get to yet. This is such good stuff. It so needs to be talked about, which is why we have you on. I'm, I'm wondering if we can do like a lightning round kind of a thing here where we can try to blast through some stuff. You think we could, sure. do, you think we could do that? Absolutely. All right. So I'm going to do this. This is for everyone. Um, we're all going to answer this question, but I want to know how each of us learned about sex. Chad, you start first. How did you <laughs> learn about? How did you learn about sex? Who taught you? I guess you need to be a little bit more specific. The man and a woman creating a baby—that's sex. How did you learn? Who told you how it works? My mom. And how I don't, you, I don't did know. you learn about it before that, or did you? Did you learn about that from your mom, or did you kind of have an idea about what was happening before then? Nope, no clue. Really? So mom just, that's rare, isn't it, Adam? Super rare. That's awesome. That's, I think, how it should happen. So, okay, you actually had a pretty good, all right, cool. Julie, do you, you care to share? Yeah, um, I think my mom did, too. and She brought books home from the library, but I also remember um, an experience of someone just, telling me too much on the bus actually (laughs) (laughs) all right um carol um it was mostly my mom she had a book that she gave me to read and had a little talk and taught me all the clinical terms for everything you know (laughs) i was a reader and i like to read the encyclopedia yes you read the encyclopedia so i had (laughs) (laughs) yes that's my my dad had this great um encyclopedia britannica series down in his office and i used to hang out in his office and i would read it so i learned a lot of stuff from doing that i bet you did (laughs) um i learned from the uh, the first started hearing about it from the playground and i just had a really whacked out idea about how it worked because i i understood the the mechanics of it but something just was missing in my brain i'm like this can't (laughs) be what makes a baby because I understood what had to happen physically, but I'm like, why would that make a baby? So I actually, and I'm sorry if this is a little too graphic, but I thought you had to pee. I mean, that's what I thought had to happen there, is you had to pee, because that's all I could figure what could happen there. So Chad's giving me a rather disturbed look right now. But I was like nine years old. I didn't know. And when my dad tried to tell me, because there was like, we were actually working with some type of a garden hose or something. He's talking about a male and female end. And I'm like, hey, Dad, why do they call it that? And he's like, well, son. I'm like, no, no, I know. I, uh, never mind. I already know. I know. I know how this works. Never mind. And he, he went through the whole conversation, and it was awkward. How about you, Adam? What are some of the crazy ideas you had, and how did you find out? Um, man, the way, like, I, my, I remember my mom explained to me that what really triggered that was um, some some kids at church um, had, like, pictures torn out of what I always used to call the Christian Playboy 
which is the JCPenney catalog. Uh, <laughs> that, that was all you could get your hands on uh, uh, that's right. in, a, in a Christian home. And, you know, when you've never uh. seen anything before, there's something exciting about the... Uh, the, the cream-colored uh, nursing bras in the uh, in the Josie Penny catalog, especially if they were sexy. the nude color. They, they, there was like different <laughs> yeah. colors. If the color Indeed. was nude, then that was super sexy. Not that I, I heard I've heard about it that. I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I you've know. never My seen it, but like no, no, the tail. That's right. Um, so I remember just seeing stuff and and then having um, and not not being young and not getting it and but hearing like older uh, kids like talk about you know, talk about sex and talk about the pictures in a way that didn't make sense to me. And, of course, I'm clueless, and, and um, I, I say something to my mom, who then does launch into this, like, clinical, of course, which was way too much information for me at that time in my life, it was just like, oh, my gosh, what, why would you <laughs> do that? I, I didn't want to know that. <laughs> what was the, um, you, you something about uh, what was widely believed at your elementary school about uh, chewing gum? What? Oh yes, yeah. That if you um, if you if you chewed a piece of gum and you you kiss someone and the gum made it from one person's mouth to the other person's mouth, you were pregnant. You're gonna have a baby. That's how it worked. Like you wow. officially just made a baby. <laughs> it was wi- um, widely known and accepted there at the elementary oh, school. Oh yes, it was well embraced. <laughs> as well as it should have uh, been in the eighth grade culture. <laughs> All right, so I, I was kidding before about speed round. Now I'm serious. Now we're going to speed round. All right, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. So in your message, you shared some different ways people learned about sex, and some of those were very funny. I wish we had time to go through those here. But you, you talk about um, why it's seductive for people's story of romance to be unique. Why do you think it is so seductive to think our romance story is the unique one? I, I think we like to believe that you know what I'm experiencing and feeling is unique because it means that I don't have to trust conventional wisdom, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, it means I can kind of, I can, can kind of do whatever I want to because mm-hmm. I'm above the heartbreak. Um, you know, where nobody has ever like loved or, or kissed or, you know, had these well. experiences like we have before. And so that is going to be enough. And even though I have all these people and the statistics and stories telling me actually that what you're feeling is a feeling, um, there's all this other stuff involved. We just don't want to believe that. We want to believe yeah. that we're the exception to the rule. And I think that's that way with a lot of things in life. Agreed. Like, I want to be the exception to the rule because I don't want to have to believe that life is uh, harder or more complicated than I want it to be. It kind of goes along with the adolescent brain, though, and that's when we first start discovering romance. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. All the adolescents that I've raised have uh, thought that they knew how life worked. And, and they still do. Yeah. And sometimes they don't. <laughs> well, go ahead, Chad. I'm just wondering if it has to do with the fact that we've been indoctrinated, so to speak, since we were children and even our cartoons, that every relationship starts out with a unique romantic situation. Mm. Looking across the room, their eyes meet, and it's all <laughs> love from that point on. We're taught that but each that- of these are all unique and that we have to have a story like that to have lifelong love. That's mm. not how it happened for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, it's hilarious because we all want that unique story that we've seen a million times. So it's yeah. like um, we want the same unique story that everyone else, <laughs> which is, of, of course, like the irony of the whole thing. Yeah. 
but that is, that's the tendency of like I think any culture. It's like we we want to emulate whatever our cultural myths are, yeah. and that is our cultural myth: is that you know you're going to meet someone, you're going to fall in love, it's going to be magical, and nothing can touch that that love because nobody you know, feels that as deeply as I do. Thing. No, it's the most powerful thing in the universe, and and no, and anybody who tries to tell you differently is because they don't get it. They don't right. know what you're experiencing. Yeah, the rules don't apply to us, and that, of course, is a huge problem. Another quote from the series is, uh, the most painful way to kill a relationship is to expect from someone else what you can only get from God. And, yeah. Uh, that is such... Man, we could spend a whole podcast on that right there. I mean, I can tell you, I was extremely guilty of that in my first marriage, um, where I became so dependent on, on my wife that, man, if she was upset with me, my world was shattered. I was nothing as a human being. And if she was happy with me, I was untouchable. You know, I was like, everything's great and nothing can ding me. Um, why do you think this is so common to, to try to find our completeness in other people instead of God? Part of it is, is the, the cultural myths that encircle us, you know, that we are, we're taught to believe that we can be completed by another human being. And that's such a prevailing myth. We get that blasted to us from TV, movies, music all the time. It creates in us, you know, this unhealthy desire to, to try and find the rest of ourselves or a sense of complete acceptance, like that our insecurities are going to dry up and go away. And it's, I mean, a lot of it really is our tendency as a society to get caught up in codependent cycles you know, where either we need somebody to rescue us and save us and fix us and make us complete, or that we think we can do that for somebody else, that, you know, we attach ourselves to someone and we think that we can save them or rescue them or fix them. And again, those are those are misnomers. And then we fall into this pattern where we either become, you know, the victim or the, or the savior in our given relationship. And yeah. And it becomes this, as opposed to two people who um, who believe that that they're imperfect, but like that God loves them perfectly, and that they're complete in um, in the fact that they're they're made by the Maker of the universe, who um, sees their unique worth and value um, and validates them to their core. Instead of these two whole people coming together, we're yeah. trying to. We're trying to take from somewhere, we're trying to make somebody into what we need them to be. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and, and that the controlling nature that comes from that, yeah. you know, um, and, and is, what what, it, is what mutates things. Yeah, and what it does to us is we try to become the hero, and when we think we've actually rescued somebody, and how that can skew how we perceive God and, and life and, and even the other person. Um, uh, Carol, I think you had, you got Yeah, the I was question. just wondering if you could be a little more specific about what kinds of things do we look for in our partners that we really should be getting from God? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think, um, you know, some of the things that I think are true about a lot of us is that, um, you know, we, we want our partner to uh, completely um, fill us up um, in, in terms of, uh, it goes from the place of, uh, I need you to compliment me in this specific way, otherwise my insecurity runs rampant, mm. as opposed to, I feel secure because I really deeply believe that I am loved and 
um, and I'm cared for deeply um, by by God. And so when you compliment me, when you encourage me, it's just icing on the cake. I already have my my needs are already being met. Yeah. Um, from something that is beyond human. Um, and so I can really just enjoy what you have to give me. But if you don't have, you know, encouragement to give me, if you're dealing with your own stuff, if you had a bad day, if, you know, you don't look at me just right or say the right thing in the moment, like, I don't need that to to be okay. Right. Um, because I'm getting those needs met elsewhere. I think, you know, and part of that, too, is one of the deepest human needs we have is to, to feel like we're in control. It's tough because, you know, you can't see God. And also, even with God, we kind of wish we could control God. We, we kind of wish that he would just do what we wanted to do and say the things we wanted him to say and respond the way we wanted him to do. You know, we realize that that's not the way that relationship works. We kind of, I think, project that desire on people that are a little bit easier to, to steer, you know, where if I need this from you, if I do this to you, if I... You know, we kind of figure out how to push the buttons and the people around us to kind of get what we want from them. Absolutely. Um, and uh, and it becomes that weird, it, again, it becomes the thing that we all say we don't like, which is it becomes a game Yeah. where, you know, you do this and then I respond this way and you kind of default to that thing and whatever. And it's both of us trying to kind of manipulate each other to kind of get what we want as opposed to, I love you, um, this is what I want out of this exchange. But you know what? I'm in this thing. Um, I'm not looking to get all my needs met by you. Yeah, um, on, on the deepest of levels. Yeah, and I and I like that in what you're saying. It's so true because when we do the manipulation game, it starts to work and will often work in the very beginning. But then the other person will, will develop a defense for that because no one wants to be manipulated, and you start to develop this spiral that, especially if you've been married for a long time. You just continue to go through that game, like you said. Well, and you know that if it's the result of manipulation, it's false. It's not genuine, so it's yeah. empty. I have a couple questions. One is, how do you get to that point where you're not looking for anything from the other person? And how do you balance that with God saying about Adam that it's not good for him to be alone? He needed yeah. more. Yeah, for sure. I think, like... Again, this is this is super this is super like deep stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we uh, like here at uh, our podcast. But like, it, um, but like, I think I think part of it is us doing our. I have a buddy who's a marriage and family therapist. He always talks about like you have to do your own work, mm-hmm. you know, um, which is the idea of again a lot of a lot of what we're expecting or what we feel like we need to get from someone else. A lot of that stuff is buried in our past. You know, it's buried in our our wounds from our childhood or from previous relationships. One of the things that um, I hear my buddy say a lot is the thing that's tanking that relationship is that who's really calling the shot is the eight-year-old inside. Exactly. And and that's the issue because the eight-year-old inside is impulsive and is hurt and was shamed because of this one situation and so is, is constantly projecting that. One of the things that happens to us is we... You know, we fall into these patterns where we project our old pain and our old wounds onto the new people that we're attaching ourselves to. Whatever our early experiences were, that becomes the archetype, and we see someone who falls loosely into that pattern, and we project a lot of those same, you know, feelings or thoughts or insecurities onto this new person who's now stepped into that archetypal role. To, to kind of break that cycle is this is the deep inner work 
of having to go through and address where that's coming from. And again, I don't even think this is just in relationships. Like I was talking to my staff this past week about how this happens in, in job situations mm-hmm. yeah, where absolutely. we feel frustrated about our work or about our job. And it's like, you know, my boss never sees what I do and never compliments mm-hmm. it. Da, 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 and it's like all this stuff. I remember uh, my last job being caught up in the midst of all that and, and actually sitting with a therapist talking about all this stuff. And, and one of the, I think one of the most eye-opening things is the guy goes, that's really interesting. Sounds like you really, really need that on a deep level. <laughs> like, are, but are you really? He goes, are you you're really a jerk, therapist? Don't <laughs> yeah. spin this on he goes, me. He goes. Uh, I mean, is it really that you want that from him, or is it really just that you just never got it from your dad? Oh, hey, <laughs> hey! Thanks for coming. I can. I have and to that, go now. That's <laughs> when you cash out because it starts to get super real, <laughs> you know. And and again, it's like addressing some of those things. And for me, again, I don't think. Uh, you know, uh, the recovery movement is always about, I'm not recovered, I'm in recovery. Like, I'm constantly... Yeah. I think we're all recovering from childhood wounds yeah. and yeah. Um, in one way or another. And so it's the idea of, like, now when I have that, that gut reaction where I'm trying to get from somebody yeah. in authority, I'm, I'm at least cognizant of, like, this is not about you. I love, this is not about you. I love this is about me and what I'm carrying. Yes. And, like, the fact that I have a thing. One of the things that, uh, again, totally stealing this from my, my friend Dennis Patton, he's a marriage and family therapist, one of my good friends. But one of the things that he always says, <clears throat> which is a great tool that Gretchen and I use a lot, is he'll say, own your problems, right? So a lot of times we come to somebody in conflict in a relationship mm. And the contempt is buried in there. And mm-hmm. so we come at them with, like, you don't do this, and you yep. da, and the thing I don't like about whatever, and it's all them. And one of the tools that, like, he, he gave to us, which I think is really smart, is he goes, approach it, he goes, approach it in this way, where you take ownership of the problem. So it's not, they're not the problem. Mm-hmm. He goes, because ultimately, he goes, when, so, when one person is calm and the other person is freaking out, which one has the problem? <laughs> That's a good point. Mm-hmm. And so he goes, he goes, I'll go, just go to that person and just be like, hey, um, I'm, I hate to bother you with this. Could you help me with the problem I'm having? And this is like a, the humble way of approaching, right, somebody you're, you're in relationship with. Would you help me with the problem I'm having? Mm-hmm. I'm having a really hard time when uh, feeling this thing. And it was when this thing happened, it triggered this thing in me, and I'm having a really hard time in this moment because of that. Would you help me with that? Because I think that when this goes down, it triggers, and I realize that's totally my problem, not your problem, yep. but would you help me? And then it becomes this thing as opposed to you're bad, you're evil, you screwed up, you're the problem. It's like, no, I have a problem that's buried deep within my soul, and to no fault of your own, because I'm assuming the best in love, yeah. you stumbled on to the landmine that was my my deep soul wound, and yeah. I want to invite you to help me by um, by realizing that that is a mind for me, even though for you it's a kiddie pool and you don't get yeah. it. Yeah. But for me, it's a, it's, it's a thing. And so, would you help me by by like just moving that, like pushing that aside, or not going to that place, or not doing this thing um, because I have a hard time with it. And again, just taking the ownership 
of it for yourself and realizing that it's not you. It's something that's buried within me. Yeah, it, you it, know? It, it's so hard. It's so, when you bump into someone else's brokenness, it's so difficult because it's so painful and we, we're not sure they're going to handle it well. So going back to the fact that God said that Adam, was, it was not good for him to be alone. Obviously, there are reasons why God wants us in relationships and in community. Yeah. And we're supposed to be, we are supposed to be meeting needs for each other. Yep. But the problem is when we want the other person to meet our needs rather than thinking about what needs we can meet of theirs. Right? Absolutely. So what would you say are the needs that we should expect to provide for, for our partners in a relationship? Is that fluid and does it have to be, is it something that you can kind of say is normal for most couples or is it kind of different between each people? So we'll shut up and let you answer. I think, and these are all super good questions. I, I think the, the distinction is like, you know, I'll say a lot of times like that, that's part of the interesting thing about the way that, that theology is framed in the Bible is like this idea of, you know, there are certain things that, you know, we, we try and get from people that we can only get from God. And there are certain things that we're like, you know what, fine, I'll just only connect with God and not people. And God's like, yeah. well, that's not going to work either. Right. And so it's this, it, he's forcing us into the tension that we need relationships on both sides. I think where things get askew are, for instance, like, it's, it's good for me to want to encourage my wife, and I should encourage her, but I can't. Like, all of the encouragement I could ever give her can't fill her encouragement tank, the one that's deep in her soul yeah. that feels like she's broken deep down. And because there's something, especially when, we, when we're wounded or we have things that have happened in our past, we think that, man, if I could just get this person to say and do all the right things, it, that would heal me deep down. Exactly. But that kind of deep-level healing has to come from, from God, you know, from us surrendering that that wound to him and so it's one of those things where it's like a lot of the things that we really do need um in life we people are a part of the way in which god throws that into us but i think it's the it's believing that that it's going to once and for all permanently satisfy us if they do it right yeah exactly they're doing it wrong that's the problem the reason i'm broken is they're doing it wrong and if they do it right then i wouldn't be as broken Right. If they did it right, if they did it more often, if they did it in this fashion, and it's like, well, you know, what if we allow them to to do it the way they do it? I'm (laughs) I'm wondering why you keep turning it around. Because I've asked this a couple of times, and I'm still not getting an answer. You you keep turning it around about what the person is expecting from the other person. I want to know, as a partner, what do I need to seek to provide to the other person? regardless of their wounds, regardless of their needs, what are my right. responsibilities as a partner? I think really it comes oh, down to... <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is free counseling. This is why we do this podcast. Just, we need brilliant. help. Absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah. actually, we pay someone else for it. <laughs> we do. We do. Um, I think it's providing, being a safe space for that person to be their true self. Mm. A big thing is being, um, you know... Aiming at being a like a non uh, a non reactive presence, you know, where, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase, where whoever that person comes in, 
they have this sense that they're going to be welcomed and em- and embraced for who they are, whether that's good, bad, or ugly, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to wondering which version of their spouse they're coming home to meet. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's a that's a big thing. That's a, a struggle. Like again, I, I know a lot of you know men and women who are like, you know, why are you working so late? And it's like I just kind of don't want to go home. I don't know what I yeah. I don't know what it's going to mm-hmm. get. I don't know what I'm going to get. I don't know which version of him I'm going to encounter. And I think being able to be kind of this safe space where, you know, if you had a good day or a bad day, I'm not expecting you to be perfect. And um, I'm here to, like, embrace you and to walk walk through things with you. I think the reassurance that, like, I'm in this thing and I'm not waiting for you to screw up so that I can walk out the door. Um, <laughs> which is, I think, a paranoia about well, a lot of yeah. it. It is, and, and, and in fact, especially after you've been in a failed marriage. Yeah, uh, absolutely, and, and that especially because it's like you were talking about earlier that this this transcends just um, a marriage relationship it, because it, it goes into all our relationships. But the interesting thing is that when you add sex to any relationship; it's like adding gasoline to that, and it just yeah. intensifies all of the emotions and everything that you're going through. So as we're kind of going to try to start wrapping it up here, last two questions, and these are the big ones, is number one, how can we change the culture of the churches we attend in the sense of this is a taboo subject, we can't talk about this, most of our listeners are just going to be ordinary people, they're not going to be pastors, how can the ordinary lay person have any type of impact on how the church kind of mishandles or refuses to talk about this subject? How do we make it a safe place? That's a super good question. I think the the biggest way to make, you know, an environment or an organization a safe place is you start by making yourself a safe place. Um, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? I think it means just, um, you know, being being a person who is safe for other people to talk about in a real way, um, not being afraid to share about um, your past, and your experiences, I think too. I mean, I, I and like, and you guys know as well as I do. Like, when you spend time with people, people drop hints, you know, about what they mm-hmm. want to talk about, and we're, you know, <laughs> we're we're always constant. We do that with each other, you know, where we will ask a question or we'll kind of set up a situation. We act inquisitive, but it's really because we want to share, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I think just being very sensitive and open to where people want to take conversations and. You know, sometimes when I'm having, like, interactions with people and I sense that there's something that they want to say or they want to take something, I'm like, like, what do you, what do you really want to talk about? <laughs> like, you don't, you don't really want to talk about this, do you? Because a lot of times people will approach us or we're having small talk and I'm just, and part of it is my personality, like, I, I would just rather peel back that layer mm-hmm. and just be like, what do you, what do you really want to say? What do you really want to talk about? You know, certain people that may kind of freak them out a little bit, um, and of <laughs> yeah. course, part of the, part of the way that we we enable people to like, you know, I think loosen up is to, you know, we share a little bit, it enables other people. But it's an art, you know what I mean? It's, it's not a science. It's an art of like, mm-hmm. you know, finding that line of like how much how much is safe to share with someone without them feeling like whoa, oversharing stranger. TMI. <laughs> TMI. <laughs> But, you know, being being a, um, a, a safe person, again, I think that happens over time with relationships. I, I'm always amazed at, um, 
you know, even when I go visit, you know, churches where, uh, you know, we go back um, east and in the Midwest or whatever, and I'm, I see my family, and they go kind of, the, some of them go to these little podunk churches, and it's like, you know, even even though the church culture is like something where you're like, this church culture doesn't feel safe, you get this sense of like, oh, but that couple is. Oh, they're, yeah. They're the safe ones. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're the people that will that will help you, that will um, in, invest in your life. And, man, that news of that kind of thing travels fast, mm. you know, where it's like, man, when you screw up your life and you do this and that, those are people that you could call. Those are people that you could sit with. Those are people who will come pick you up um, when you realize you've done something stupid. Yeah. And there's this this kind of... This, this thing where it's kind of non-judgmental, like, I don't need anything from you. I don't need you to agree with me. Mm. I'm not looking for anything, but, like, I want to be, like, a safe harbor for you to, for you just to kind of, like, let it all go and and me to say, like, yeah, that's okay. This doesn't change how I see you. Yeah. Mm. That's you know? so rare, you know? Yeah, and, 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 of course, I... In, Especially in churches. <laughs> unfortunately, and, and and this last quote I'll read, and this does kind of reference back to what you said, but I, I like it so much I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it the way you said it. The church ought to be the safest place in the world to openly and honestly talk about anything and everything. If we are talking about theology on a plane that doesn't connect with real life, we have missed the teaching of Jesus. Yep. And how did church, and some churches do a great job with that, and I'm not trying to throw all churches under the bus. But unfortunately, I believe the majority of churches in, in our nation, they're not a safe place to come talk about things and to have open and honest or even be who you really want to be. And that's why we have this podcast, because we just think um, people need to think and talk about these sort of things, and they're not. Well, and, and that's what's cool about what you're doing, because you are doing this thing that can be done, which is um, if, what, if what people are hungry for and what people really need if if I'm being shut down in this environment, then I'm going to go create a third space, an extra space, something else where it is safe. And that, that becomes infectious. And, and honestly, there's a lot of um, new movements in faith have been that for a lot of different things of like, man, it's not safe to love these kind of people hmm. within this current system. So I'm going to go, the answer is not to not love these people. And I don't have the ability at this point to change the system. So I'm without demonizing the system That's because key. it's working for it's yeah. working for some people on some yep. level, yep. Um, and it may even be working for me on some level. But I'm going to duck outside the system in order to extend love and and grace to to this um, this subject or this sect of people or you know whatever I this like cause. That. That's cool. But I don't have to. To embrace one is, is not to, like, reject the other one. And I think that's super key, I, especially I, I think I run into a lot of people who are doing great things, but there's this air of, you know, I've figured out this new way, um, and so I'm better than anybody who resonates with the old way. And I can tend to fall into that. It's just like, yeah. but to really be like, man, that's great, and that's working for you. And actually, I can actually duck back into that and find beauty in, inside of it. And I really value this other thing, too. And I want to. I want an existence where both of those things are okay. You know, yeah. is that what you've kind of tried to do in the in the church you are in now? Is to try to embrace some of the good what you came out of, and yet still try to create a a, a new third place, if you will. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, I I think for us, it's 
there are some beautiful redeeming things about like my past and my experiences and you know one of the things is I, I tend to think progressively about a lot of things and but you know I'm in a uh, you know a congregation where not everybody thinks like me yeah. and I think there's a there's an art to bringing people along one of the things that I think about I was actually talking to a guy a couple weeks ago about this of just where he's like, man, you know, we were talking about some subject, and he's like, I wish people would just get this, and man, we should just stand up, and we should just say this thing, and I'm like, <laughs> but then we lose, because then everybody yes. that we're trying to take, I'm like, I forget exactly how I said it, but some to the effect of like, you know, I can't take people with me who have already jumped off the bus. Yeah, yeah. And so there's an art to, like, how how fast I can take these turns. Yeah. And and so that's what we're doing here. Like, we don't we don't want to just, like, you know, take a hike up this mountain by ourselves because we're right <laughs> and we did it. Like, we want to take all these people with us. But that, that's the painstaking process of, like, okay, how do we, how do we frame this? It's, it's how still, do we talk and, about it? And still keep you your know? foot on the gas pedal and not going so slow that no one feels like you're going anywhere. But the truth of the matter is, if you think you're leading people and there's nobody following, you're just going for a walk. I'm reading a book by Donald Miller right now, Called "Searching for God Knows What," um, which is not his, you know, his big bestseller, one of his big bestsellers. But he talks about Jesus's incredible patience with the disciples yeah. after journeying him with three years, and he's on the road to being crucified, and they are still arguing about who's going to be greatest. <laughs> so keep up the good work. I will uh, continue to be in touch, um, and we'll see if you know before too long. We'll we'll try to set up another uh, another go here. Yeah, I'd love that. Hey, man, and uh, and happy birthday, and we're all going to yeah, sing happy, happy birthday, birthday before you. No, we're not. Um, <laughs> Whoa. All right, man, you have a great night. Have fun, okay? All right, thanks, bud. All right, thanks, man. We'll see you. All right, that's my uh, my good friend Adam Smith, and uh, he, he's just he's a great guy, um, and you can tell he's very passionate about uh, about his his church and and what he believes, and and that's one of the things I love about him. And I just think it's so important that we can have open, honest conversations about the most meaningful things in life. Because if we refuse to have those types of conversations, people are going to talk about this stuff. And I have to believe that coming from, I honestly believe the Bible has the best narrative on how we should live our lives. And whether you believe in the Bible or not, I believe you can't go wrong following the teachings of Jesus Christ. I don't. I think it's the best. It's how you're going to get to be the best version of you that that could possibly be, which is why we continue to do the podcast and hope you enjoy listening to it. If you want to listen to him, it's uh, I believe it's South Corona Hills. Um, he is a campus pastor. There's numerous locations. You can Google it. You can listen to him preaching online. If you enjoyed, I would highly encourage you to listen to him. He's a very engaging speaker, very funny, but then he'll quick spin it around and, and really hit you with some good truth. <laughs> uh, this is an open letter. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you can spread the word. If you've enjoyed listening to our podcast tonight, we really want the word to get spread out on this because we, we are trying to make a difference in our own small way. You can contact us on Facebook. It'd be real encouraging to us if you would just pop something on iTunes, write a review. Or if you would put something on our Facebook page, which is just an open letter, and just give us some feedback on how you think the show's going. Um, we, we, we're we lonely out on uh, the virtual world because we just need to hear more. We're very needy. We're very needy people, let's be honest. So if you could give us some feedback, that'd be fantastic. Or you can email us at 
an open letter to you. That's the number two, the letter U, an open letter to you at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening, and I uh, hope you tune in again soon. Thanks. <laughs>